You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together this morning. I pray that you would uh, enlighten us about the truth that's contained here. God, I pray that you would speak truth to our minds and hearts, and God, that we would not suppress that truth, but instead we would receive that truth, knowing that uh, this is your inspired word that comes directly from you, instructions for us about how to live our life faithfully as we wait for the second coming of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us more about this gospel, this faith that you taught us to contend for in the book of Jude. Father, I pray that we would wrap our minds around this gospel in a way that we can effectively and faithfully communicate it to others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got kids that are part of the kids' class, they can be dismissed to the back with Lauren. We... Did kind of an introduction to Romans last week. I gave you some reasons why I believe we should study the book of Romans. Uh, I told you that one commentator said to know Romans is to know Christianity. So as we study Romans, it helps us to to understand the, the basic core beliefs of Christianity. It's it's Paul's dissertation or his thesis on uh, what the gospel is and, and what it means to be a Christian. Now I told you that there are some. Some things that are missing from this book that that we need to gain knowledge about from other New Testament books. So I told you that uh, the book of Romans is somewhat quiet about the second coming of Jesus. It talks about that hope, but doesn't go into great detail about what to expect or what to look forward to. So we go to First and Second Thessalonians to, to reap that. It doesn't go into a, a ton about the resurrection. It doesn't go into the Lord's Supper. We go to First Corinthians for those teachings. And so I told you that Romans acts like an operating system when we think of computers. It's that operating system that allows the other apps to function properly. So we gain knowledge from the other books of the New Testament, but that knowledge is, is helped greatly by the knowledge that we get from the book of Romans. So we, we understand the gospel in First and Second Thessalonians because we understand the gospel from the book of Romans. So Romans allows the rest of the New Testament to have the depth of meaning that it does for us because of what we learn from the book of Romans. We said that Paul wrote the book of Romans to pass along apostolic teaching to this church. We said it was started without the help of Paul, without the help of a specific apostle. So he wants to pass along some specific teaching to them. Uh, He also wants to use Rome as his base of operations. His intention is to go as far west as he can with the gospel. So he has intentions. He tells them, I want to go to Spain with the gospel. Rome would have been that stopping point and that base of operations for him to do that type of ministry. I told you from from this study, we're going to learn about the, the dire problem that mankind has in regards to sin. We're going to understand better why the world is the way that it is today. So as we look around and see the sin and the suffering around us, our understanding of how that meshes with a good and loving and just God comes from this study in the book of Romans. It also helps answer the question how a person can be right with God, which is the question that all religions try to answer for us. We said the major theme of the book is God's righteousness revealed in Christ that is acquired by faith. So God reveals righteousness to us through Christ. We receive that righteousness by faith, which is what Romans 1, 16 through 17, our memory verse for this week, communicates to us. I gave you two important definitions last week. The gospel. The gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. 
I told you you could kind of condense that down into a collection of five words. Does anybody remember those five words that helps us remember that definition for the gospel? God, man, sin. The answer to sin, Christ, and the way we receive Christ is with our response. So, man, or God, man, sin, Christ, response. Um, that's the gospel. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. And we learned about that um, a little bit last week that purpose of for his glory forever when Paul says that um, his desire is to take the gospel to the nations. For the name of Christ, he says in verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So that's the definition for the gospel. We said justification, which is a theme that runs throughout the book of Romans. It means to be declared righteous, to be right in God's eyes, to have right standing before God. And we're going to look at that more in detail today. So we get into Romans chapter 1, and it's helpful to see Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 through the eyes of a courtroom. Now, I'm going to post a graphic on the city this week to give you a, a visual of what we're talking about. But Romans 1, 2, and 3 is set up like a courtroom scene where Paul brings arguments to show why every single person is guilty before God. So he's going to show us why in Romans chapter 1, the average immoral heathen person is guilty before God and why they have no excuse. He's going to show us in chapter 2 why the, the good person, the, the person who tries to live an upstanding life, the guy who tries to, to live a moral lifestyle is guilty before God. And he's also going to show us in chapter 2 why God's chosen people, the Jewish people, are guilty before God. And so he brings uh, evidence after evidence. And it's, it's as though we're the jury. We're the ones that Paul is trying to convince of this guilt. And so uh, time after time, individual after individual, Paul exposes the sin that condemns all of us before God. Um, and we'll see that as we work through Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. We also get a real, a real good idea of why the world is the way that it is here in Romans chapter 1. We see why there is sin and suffering around us as it flows out of sinful man's choices and decisions that extend all the way back to the garden at creation. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that uh, they fell, they were cursed, and everyone that comes from Adam and Eve is now cursed. And we see the, the, the effects of that curse here in Romans chapter 1, how sinful decision after sinful decision leads us into the state of world that we experience today. So Romans chapter 1, I told you from an outline standpoint, we start with condemnation. So Romans chapter 1 is God's wrath revealed against the immoral man. Paul shows us why the immoral man deserves God's wrath here in chapter 1. So in your notes, we start with Paul's greeting, and it's his longest greeting of any of his letters that he writes in the New Testament. We said the reason for that last week is because he does not know this group of people very well. This is not a church that he started. This is not a church that he's visited. And so he feels compelled to write a longer introduction than he would to other churches. He starts off with the gospel calling. The gospel calling. He identifies himself as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before. This goes back really to Exodus 21 where within the Jewish system it was built in that if you were a slave... You had the right to be released from slavery. So God had designed it to be a way to get out of debt, to, to get yourself back on your feet. 
And once that was accomplished, uh, an individual did not have rights over you anymore. You had the option to opt out of your slavery. But if in those years of serving that individual, you felt like, you know what, this is a great situation. My master takes care of me. I love working for my master. You could seal your fate by saying, I'm going to serve this master for the rest of my life. The actual quote from Exodus is that I love my master. I will not go free. And you would seal it by piercing your ear. And it was a sign to everybody else that you had devoted your life to a master that you loved, you respected, and you wanted to serve faithfully. And that's the idea of what Paul says here when he says he's a servant of Jesus. It's that, that willful commitment to serve him because he loves him. We learn very quickly here in Paul's greeting that the gospel sets us apart for service. Paul is called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. One commentator said that uh, the gospel arrests men for his service. And so Paul feels arrested. He is, he is compelled. He is set apart to do what God has asked him to do. And he expounds upon that. He's, his desire is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. We also learn in this greeting that the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. He says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this isn't a new teaching. This isn't new truth that's come on the scene. Paul says this is, this is the gospel, and the gospel can be found in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus, when he was walking after his resurrection, he took two men aside and told them how the Old Testament points to him. So the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. We also learn from this greeting that the gospel fulfills the covenant promise to David. He says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh... And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I think we miss the significance of this because we're not Jewish and we have never felt compelled to look for this type of king. But if you were in that context as a Jewish individual, this was your longing. This was your hope that the right king would show up that was better than any king that came before him. That could rule and reign with justice. Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 7, or verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Don't miss the significance of what Paul says here in this greeting. The Davidic covenant, and you'll remember we talked about covenants not too long ago. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is huge, and the New Testament does not make light of this. In fact, the New Testament begins and ends with Jesus as the descendant of David. If we look at Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, Matthew felt very, uh, very compelled to identify to us who Jesus is in light of his descendancy from David. This is the purpose of the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the New Testament begins by drawing our attention to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus sits on the throne to rule forever, specifically after the resurrection. 
Now, it's not to say that Jesus hasn't always ruled and reigned, but there is a clear shift in the New Testament's thinking about Jesus' rule and reign. We find out in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbles himself, comes to this earth, God exalts him, sets him at the right throne, and gives them the authority for every need about a Jesus. So there is an element of a point in time after the resurrection where Jesus really assumes everything that it means to be the Messiah. And his father bestows that right and authority to him after the resurrection. And you'll remember, in in Jesus' ministry, he drew attention to the fact that his resurrection was going to be very significant in regards to his authority. In John John 2.19, he said that uh, if you were to to, uh, take my life, that he could rebuild it in three days. He said, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And you'll remember from our study of Jonah, it's a reference to him being in the grave. For three days and coming back to life. So it's after this resurrection that he is instilled. He's installed in this this throne of glory where he really takes his position to where not that again that he hasn't ruled and reigned forever. But now it's officially declared to all that Jesus is the Messiah where his his existence at times was veiled in the Old Testament. It's now completely clear in the New Testament and our responsibility to serve him and worship him as Lord. The gospel brings obedience for God's glory in all nations, Paul tells us. He says, I want to bring about the obedience of faith, a belief that results in action. It's our task to lead others to this type of obedience. We're also told in this greeting that the gospel results in us belonging to Jesus, being loved by God and becoming saints in glory. He says in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's a, it's a greeting that's full of theological depth. We don't have time to exhaust it today. Um, but there's so much there that Paul's wanting to communicate uh, that's relevant to our understanding of the gospel. Moving through the chapter, we come to Roman numeral 2, or, or the gospel longing. Sorry, the gospel longing. Uh, number one, as superior as Paul's faith is, he needs the encouragement of other believers. I think this is really important that Paul draws attention to the fact that he wants to come to Rome because he needs to be encouraged by these people. He says, um, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This isn't the typical traveling evangelist that comes in to give his message and to reap the the financial reward of his time paul says i want to come to you i want to come and teach you but i want to come so that you can encourage me and that's significant because we're talking about paul here and this is towards the end of his life a man who's planted churches who god has used to reach the gentiles a man who thoroughly understands the gospel coming to a, a church and saying you as the average believer has a role in my life to encourage me And that should serve as an encouragement to us this morning. No matter where you stand in regards to spiritual maturity, you have a role to encourage people in this church, no matter how spiritually mature you may think of somebody else in this church. Paul, who's kind of the the top of the, the echelon as far as spiritual maturity, says, I need to be encouraged by people in this church at Rome. That's my desire to come and be with you. It's also significant, as saved as these believers are, they still need the gospel. As saved as they are, they still need the gospel. 
He says, you belong to Jesus. You're called to be saints. You're loved by God. I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel to you. Like, oh, I thought the gospel was for unsaved people. I thought the gospel was for people that, that were lost and needed to come to Jesus. And then after that, we, we graduate to another level of teaching. Paul says, you are saved. You are loved. You belong to Jesus. I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel to you. It's a reminder to us that if we're going to persevere to the end, if we're going to make it through the apostasy that Jude talks about, that Paul talks about in First and Second Thessalonians, when the, the Antichrist comes and deception sets in, the only way we make it to the end as believers is if we always cling to the gospel. The gospel is what saves us, not good works. We have to constantly be reminded, because if not, we despair in our performance. It's only by God's righteousness revealed by Christ that we're saved on that glorious day when Jesus returns. Paul says, I want to draw your attention constantly back to that truth. Paul's greeting, I encourage you to read and reflect on it more than we have time to today. Roman number two, God saves by revealing righteousness. God saves people by revealing righteousness. Paul says in verse 16, I have nothing to be ashamed about in regards to this gospel. It's the power of God. For salvation. Now, why would he be tempted to be ashamed? Well, because he lives in a world that's in revolt and in rebellion against God. It's the same reason we feel uh, impaired to share the gospel with people that we work with. We're scared about their reaction. We're scared how they react to us. We're seen as the um, the outcasts, the outsiders, the ones that do life differently than everybody else on this earth. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective as to who's right and who's wrong. There, uh, I've used this illustration before in the, in the movie Count of Monte Cristo. There, there's a, um, a scene where um, there's a discussion about an individual who wants to see Napoleon Bonaparte freed and brought back. Uh, to be released from prison and to come back and to renew his empire. And, and this guy's saying, like, if, if people hear you talking about this, you're going to be killed for being a traitor. And the guy responds and says, no, you're going to be killed for a traitor when he shows back up. It's all a matter of perspective. Right now, I look like the traitor because Napoleon's not here. But when Napoleon comes back, you'll be seen as the traitor, and I'll be given a, a high position in his new empire. That's relevant for us, too, because right now we look like the ones that live wrong on this earth. But it's a matter of perspective. When Jesus returns, everything gets made right. We know that from Second Thessalonians, that, that justice will be served that those who have been in rebellion will be punished and will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And so Paul says, I don't need to be ashamed about this. I know that right now I endure persecution, but it's all a matter of perspective. I don't need to be ashamed about this. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 why he's not ashamed about this. In 2 Timothy chapter 1... Um, Verse 11, he says, I was appointed to the gospel, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So he says, I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher, I suffer because I teach the gospel. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says it's all about perspective. I know whom I believe. I know that he's coming back. I know he's coming back on a specific day. So I have no reason to be ashamed leading up to that day. Because when he comes, all will be made right. 
the author of Hebrews gives us that same call to not shrink back. And it's an encouragement to us this morning as we continue to talk about taking the gospel to our friends and family and co-workers that we not shrink back, that we, we, we share the same resolve that Paul has, that I'm not ashamed of this gospel. In Hebrews 10:38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So a true Christian perseveres. A true true Christian does not shrink back. A true Christian is not ashamed of the gospel. A true Christian moves forward and progresses with the gospel in communicating it to others. Paul echoes that here in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So back in Romans 1, God reveals his righteousness. We learn that in Romans 1.16. What is righteousness? What does that word mean? In your notes there, it's right standing. It's being right all the time. It's right standing before God. Righteousness is being right with God. It's being right or being perfect all the time. And as we'll see throughout this book of Romans, we're incapable of being righteous on our own. Paul has to draw attention to the fact in Philippians 3 that despite all of his qualifications, he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may, be, may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. That depends on faith. The righteousness is right standing before God. Number one in your notes there, the gospel is the only power to save because it's the only way to gain righteousness. He says it's the power of God for salvation. The reason it's the power of God for salvation is because it's the only way to gain righteousness. All of the religions that teach that we can be good enough to to earn favor with that God, that righteousness falls far short of the real true God. And what he demands. He demands perfection. And we can't earn perfection. And so it's the power of God for salvation because it's the only way to truly gain righteousness. And it's available to everyone because it only requires a response of faith. Notice he doesn't say in verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to those that are baptized or to those that are circumcised. Or to those that grew up Jewish or to those that grew up Baptist. He says it's available to everyone who believes. There's no prerequisite to it, right? Like there's nothing that has to be done first before you can be saved. There's, there's no uh, element of works that have to be accomplished before, okay, now I can be right with God. He says it's available to everyone that believes. It's available to everyone that has faith. Remember we've defined faith as trusting truth. The truth is, is that we are sinful, that Christ is not. The truth is, is that we are incapable of being perfect, and Christ has been perfect for us. And when we put our faith and trust in that, then we're saved. We sang about it this morning. Take me with my fears and my failures. Like, I I don't come being able to offer you any type of righteousness. We don't come to God and say, save me because of what I've accomplished. It's save me because I can't accomplish anything. And then it's after salvation, and we'll talk about this in a minute, how the good works flow from that saving faith. Anna asked about where the live by faith comes from. It comes from Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4, he says that um, 
in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I think both elements are contained there, Anna, that we live by faith now spiritually, that we've been uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit's work so that we live faithfully now, but that it, it's necessi- it necessitates that we live all the way till the day that Jesus returns so that we can live forever into the future. So I think both elements contain there a present living by faith that leads to an eternal living by faith when Christ returns. That moves us into the big meaty section of Romans chapter 1 in verse 18. Roman numeral 3 in your notes, God condemns. By revealing wrath. God condemns by revealing wrath. So he takes a break from this righteousness talk of of how God reveals righteousness. He, He steps back and says, okay, let me explain to you why you need this righteousness. He'll come back to this theme of God's righteousness in Romans chapter 3. But before he gets into the real depth of how we acquire this righteousness, he wants us to understand how sick we are. How dead we really are and why we only can be saved by this righteousness that God reveals through Christ. Before we get into this, I want to read to you from Genesis because I think the the parallels are striking. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 20 to the setting that that Paul gives here in Romans chapter 1. The comparison going back to what happened in the garden, how God had created things because Paul draws a lot on the created order for his arguments here in Romans, 8, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Listen to Genesis 1:20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great, creature, great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that we get off base really quickly in our sin. Because God had designed it for us to have dominion over the creatures. And yet what we see happens very quickly is that man elevates the creature into a status of worship. And the way that he describes this element of worship is through these same created things that we just talked about in Genesis 1. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their, fu- their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God, in Genesis 1, says, I've made you in my image. And what we see happening here is man trying to make God into our image. Taking created things, trying to create a God that will serve our selfish needs. What we see here in this passage is a failure to do three things. A failure to know God, a failure to worship God, and a failure to obey God. A failure to know God. Paul Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And yet they ignore that knowledge. Failure to know God is suppression of truth. A couple of terms that we want to make sure we define before we get into this. First is wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed. Wrath is God's proper response to man's sin. It's God's anger towards sin, but it's his right anger. It's his rightful anger towards sin. It's his rightful anger towards wickedness and his desire to destroy anything that's evil that would wreck his creation. His wrath is poured out. It's proper. It's right. Going back to that courtroom setting, in the same way it's right for a judge to bring, to bring judgment upon somebody that breaks the law. And we would, all, we would all cheer for that if it was negatively affecting us. If somebody was brought into the courtroom that had murdered somebody that was close to you, you would want the judge to bring justice to that situation. And so it's very right for God to punish this sin and for his wrath to be poured out. It's right for him to pour this wrath out because God describes what we refer to as general revelation. General revelation, and the definition for that. General revelation is God revealing himself to all persons at all times in all places through the natural order of creation. So it's God revealing himself to all persons at all times in all places through the natural order of creation. So general revelation is God's general revealing of himself to everybody since he created. So it's available to anyone and everyone, no matter where you grew up, no matter where you live, the same revelation is available to you as is available to me. So the individual in Africa who's never heard about Jesus has the same general revelation as I do. He can look and see the same creative order that I can. And it's that that gives him no excuse before God. Now, special revelation is different. Special revelation is God revealing himself to specific persons at definite times and places. God revealing himself to specific persons at definite times and places. So this isn't available to everybody. God revealed himself through the Bible. He revealed himself through Christ. He revealed himself through angels. He revealed himself through prophets. At times, he's revealed himself through visions and dreams. This is special things that God communicates that the guy in Africa doesn't know about, that the man in China maybe doesn't know about. These are specific things that God says about himself that we can't know by looking around at the earth. Paul says there are things that you can know living in Africa with no electricity, with no internet. There are things that you can know about God. Look what he says. 
Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So general revelation, it gives us the existence of a powerful, eternal God. And as we see at the end of Romans chapter 1, we also find out that there's a moral standard that we don't meet. Because Paul says they know they do wrong things. And we'll learn more about that in chapter 2. There's a violation of the conscience that exists in every primitive tribe that's out there. Every tribe, every individual has a conscience of what's right and what's wrong. Now, for those of us that have grown up around the Bible, we have a greater understanding of what's right and wrong. But even at the basic primitive level, there's a conscience about right and wrong. God says in Romans chapter 2, they'll be judged by that law. Even if they didn't have the Bible, there's enough to find them guilty based on the law that's written on their hearts. And every individual that makes up those primitive tribes has violated that conscience at some point in their life. They've done what was wrong knowing what was right. Or they've not done what was right knowing that that was wrong. God says, you can know about me. You can know enough about me to know that I exist, that I'm eternal, that I'm powerful, that there's a responsibility on some level for you to submit to me. That's why the Bible says it's foolishness to believe that there is no God. That's why Bill Nye in that debate with with Ken Ham, it's foolishness to not see God's existence as creator. The Bible doesn't argue for God's existence. The The Bible assumes God's existence. Only a fool would believe that there is no God. Special revelation, though, is where we find out the details of God's salvation plan. God is created in order to reveal through the beauty of creation, through the complexity of creation, through the design and the usefulness of creation. We can know of God's existence. Now, this is important to note. Nobody can be saved through general revelation. Okay, so, so the guy in Africa can't look around at nature and say, okay, I want to submit to God. I know he's there. I know he's eternal. I know he's powerful. I'm going to live for him and obey my conscience. Nobody gets saved through general revelation. There is, let me read this, to, this statement to you. While there is not enough revelation in nature to save a man, there is enough revelation to condemn him. Does that make sense? There's not enough revelation in creation to save a man but there's absolutely enough revelation in creation to condemn him okay so mankind knows that he's sinful he knows that there's a god that he doesn't measure up to simply by looking at nature now there's examples in 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 scripture of people who were in this type of setting who knew about god wanted to know more about god but were, were limited in their knowledge because they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have special revelation. Rahab is a great example. Rahab living in Jericho. Her, her, her country's about to be destroyed, right? The Israelites are about to invade. Rahab has enough knowledge about God that she wants to submit to him. I mean, she wants to love him. She wants to be a follower of him. But she doesn't know how to do it. It's not by coincidence that Joshua says, you know what, let's send two spies into Jericho. They end up in Rahab's house as a harlot, as a, as a hotel worker, and they have a conversation about Yahweh, and she ends up saying, look, I want to follow your God. Please tell me how. And they say, look, we'll save you. 
We won't kill you. We'll save you, your family, and you can become what we are. Cornelius is a man who fears everything that he knows about God, but in a vision, God says, you need to go get Peter so Peter can tell you about Jesus because you're, you're insufficient without Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's riding through the desert. He's reading Isaiah. He's got special revelation but doesn't understand it. God brings Philip to him. Philip says, you need to know about Jesus. Let me explain to you about Jesus. So people speculate and they say, what about the guy in Africa who wants to be a Christian but doesn't know about Jesus? Does that guy go to heaven? That guy doesn't exist. That guy does not exist. The man in Africa that wants to follow Jesus, the missionary gets to him and tells him about Jesus. Because there's not enough information in general revelation to save him. But God doesn't abandon somebody that wants to serve him and condemn them on general revelation. He sends people to communicate. And we'll learn about that in Romans chapter 10. They can't be saved unless they hear. They can't hear unless somebody goes. If there was enough revelation in nature to save somebody, we should call all our missionaries home. Why separate from our loved ones if they can be saved through nature? Obviously they can't. Romans 10 tells us that. So there's enough there to condemn them, not enough there to save them. That's Paul's point there in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now we see the depth of the sin that he really wants to highlight here and why this immoral man is condemned. So it's a failure to worship God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppression of truth. He lays that groundwork for why there's no excuse. And then verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. There's a failure here to submit to God's creative rights over us. There's no honor given to him. There's also a failure to submit with an attitude of thanksgiving. There's no honor. There's no thanksgiving being given to God. There's no worship of him. Our primary sin is that we fail to value God above all things. We neither honor him or praise him as our supreme treasure. John Piper talks a lot about this, that, that Christ has to be our treasure. And we sin, the root of all of our sin is the fact that we value created things over our creator. That's where the whole thing gets off kilter here. And we're going to see as it kind of flows out from this. Once there's a, a misunderstanding about who to worship and how to worship, it radically shapes the way that we live our life. Paul draws on the attention of general revelation and the responsibility to be thankful in, in Acts chapter 14. He's talking with a group of people that uh, don't know Christ, that don't know the true God. In Acts 14, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. These guys are drawing attention to the fact that, look, God is good. God has been good and he's given that witness to you. Obviously, our response should be gratitude and thanksgiving. And Paul says, we've missed it. Sinful man has missed it. He doesn't honor God. 
He doesn't submit to God in thanksgiving. He's missed the whole purpose of life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this immoral man that's described here in chapter 1 has missed life's purpose. And when he fails to worship God rightly, it causes him to live wrongly as well. The third thing there, a failure to obey God. A failure to obey God. Ultimately, a failure to worship God rightly leads to the moral disintegration of individuals and society. A failure to worship God rightly leads to the moral disintegration of individuals and society. When sinners abandon God, he abandons them. Romans 1 says he gives them over to their sin. He allows sinful man to go down this path. What we see here, number one, truth rejection. Remember that suppression of truth. Truth rejection leads to deception. It leads to deception. A rejection of truth opens the gateway for deception. When we don't worship right, we stop thinking right. Look what he says. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They stopped worshiping right, and so they stopped thinking right. Now, they, they, they think they're thinking right. They think the choices and decisions that they're making are right decisions and choices based on desires that they have. But as we see here, God has given them over to sinful desires. God has given them over to a debased way of thinking because they're not worshiping and honoring him rightly. They're deceived. Their deception leads to a complete break from God's created order. Specifically, Paul highlights that when they don't worship right, it leads to idolatry. So when they rebel against God, there's a break from creative order. God created them to worship him. Now they, they worship created things. That's not the way God designed it. We also see that there's a complete break in understanding of how the sexual relationship is supposed to work. Not only do they not worship right, they don't have sex right either. This continues to be a theme that we see in the New Testament. We saw it in Jude when the apostasy happens, that there's, there's wrongful ways about thinking about sex. We saw it in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Something goes awry when people stop worshiping God right. It affects the, everything of their life, specifically in the area of sex. And he highlights the homosexual relationship, and we'll come back to it in just a second. But deception leads to a complete break from God's creative order. We don't worship right. We don't have sex right. Evil flows from not worshiping God rightly, and we can't fix the situation with good works. Let me illustrate it to you this way. God created us to worship him. Okay? 
So when we worship God, we're giving glory and honor and thanksgiving to God. God's spirit works through us. So God's spirit is living inside of us. And through that relationship, good works flow and extend in our relationships to others. Okay, so we're living rightly. Okay, when we worship rightly, God's spirit works through us and everything flows through that relationship and we're living properly. Okay, it's, the, it's what we said before. Good works come after salvation. Once we're worshiping rightly, God works through us. Here's what's happening in Romans chapter 1. These people have set up false gods. Okay? They've set up false gods. And they are worshiping these false gods. And these gods, these things of, of creation, whether it's a, an idol that's actually being bowed down and worshipped, or whether it's uh, what I posted on the city this week, sports. We make gods out of anything and everything that's created. We give our attention and our honor and our glory. We give our time and our resources to things all the time that is not God. And then the values of those gods flow out of us. And that's where we see all this sin that happens here in Romans chapter 1. And then religion comes along and says, okay, we've got to fix all this sin. So the best way to fix it is to try to work our way back to God. That's not what good works are for, right? Like We can't work our way back to God because God created us to submit out of faith to him. And then the good works happen. But every religion wants to tell us, okay, we've, we've made a mistake, we've committed sin, now we've got to fix it by doing good works. And the gospel says, no, the only way to get out of this is to start worshiping rightly again so that God's spirit indwells us and then the good works start to flow. But as soon as this gets off kilter, as soon as we stop worshiping God and we start worshiping these false gods, then sin begins to flow out of our life. And that's what Paul's highlighting here. He says, as soon as they messed up the worship aspect, it was guaranteed that they were going to mess up the obedience aspect. This evil begins to flow because they're not worshiping rightly. Does they get their due penalty? Tyson asks, what does that mean? In context, obviously it's talking about the sexual sins here. Now, he says that God gives them over to a wrong way of thinking. And he highlights that wrong way of thinking in regards to sex. And he draws specifically on the homosexual relationship. He says it's a break from the creative order. He goes back to Genesis and he says God created it one way and we've abused it and changed it to another way. Now, the argument that there's, there's plenty of denominations out there that are, are um, in a situation right now where they're pro-homosexual. There, there are denominations out there that uh, ordain homosexual ministers. And you look at it and you're like, how do, they, how do they justify those actions when you read very clearly in Romans chapter 1 that something's gone wrong here? God's given them over to a practice, a way of thinking that leads to this type of behavior. Now, some people want to interpret this and say, well, here's what's wrong about this. It's when heterosexual people try to act like a homosexual. That's unnatural. And that's where sin happens. If someone is, is created and born homosexual, then they're right to live as a homosexual. The sin that Paul's highlighting here is when a heterosexual tries to act like a homosexual or a homosexual tries to act like a heterosexual. 
That's a false way of understanding this. It's a false way of understanding this. But how do we deal with somebody who, who is struggling with these type of desires? How do we reconcile how they feel with what God's word seems to be saying here? Now, I've got experience in this. I, I remember a girl visited um, Mount Gilead a long time ago when we were at Mount Gilead. A girl visited. She came a few times. I remember her sitting on the back of my truck with me, talking and pouring out her heart about these homosexual desires that she had. And she says, Adam, I don't understand how I can be born this way and have these desires, and yet you tell me that God says I can't live this way. It doesn't, doesn't match up with these desires that I have. I'm, this is who I am. How can you tell me not to be the way that I am? I remember looking at her and I'm saying, you think you're the only one that has desires that God's word says we can't live out? You're not the only one. I said, I said, uh, I forget her name, but I said, I've got selfish desires. I've got prideful desires. I've got desires to look at other women that are not my wife. And the Bible says it's not okay. Imagine if I went with that line of thinking that because I have desires, it makes it okay. I was born with these desires. Can you imagine me sitting down with Lauren and saying, Lauren, I really have an attraction, a strong attraction to this lady at work. And these desires are, are here, and, and it's okay for me to act out on them because this is who I am, and this is, this is the desires. I happen to have a crazy thing. I like a lot of girls, and I find a lot of girls attractive, so you're just going to have to deal with that in our marriage. That's not okay. Do I have those desires? Yes, I have to fight those desires. I can't just watch movies that I want to watch when there's, when there's immodestly dressed women on them. I'll fall into lust. I can't just click around on the internet and visit any site that I want to. Because I have sinful desires that aren't supposed to be there, but they're there because I'm born from Adam and Eve. So Paul highlights the homosexual relationship here, but let's not lose sight of the fact that any, any type of sexual sin flows out of this and it's wrong because God created it for man, woman, in marriage. So any sexual desire that doesn't line up with that is wrong, no matter if I have the desire or not. I can't claim that just because the desire is there that it's okay. Question. I would say it the same way that I'm going to deal with my son, AJ, when he grows up and says, I've been selfish my whole life. He's selfish. He doesn't like for people to play with his toys. And that's been there since he was able to comprehend toys. And I would tell him the same thing I would tell anybody that's got a desire that they say, hey, it's been there since I was born. It still has to be submitted to God's word. We're born into sin, right? So we would expect that there are going to be sinful desires that are there that's not part of God's ultimate plan for us. And until he comes back and makes us right, they're going to be there, and we're going to have to fight against them. I never reach a point where I can just watch movies that I want to and surf the Internet like I want to. I have sinful desires that will make me fall, and I have to submit those desires. That's why some of you have accountability software. You don't trust yourself enough to click on the Internet we have to get emails to make sure that you're, you're in line where you should be. And that's how it should be because you're recognizing, I'm too weak. I've got sinful desires. And they're not okay. And I have to fight them daily. That would be true for somebody who's claiming homosexual desires. It's true for the man who, who claims heterosexual desires outside of his marriage. 
It's a wrong way of thinking. It breaks from the creative order. This truth rejection leads, secondly, to idolatry. A rejection of truth leads to the worship of earthly things, gods that meet our selfish desires. This is hard for us to comprehend because I don't think any of us really struggle with bowing down to little wooden or metal objects. But that is the case for a large portion of the world still today. You go east and you go into some of these Hindu and Buddhist countries and they're bowing down to this stuff. That seems so foreign to our culture. For us, modern idols are more mental than they are metal. Our gods take a different shape, but the root is still the same issue. We give honor and thanksgiving to things that don't deserve our honor and thanksgiving. And we fail to give it where we should. And when we fall into this idolatry, it leads to immorality. God created us in his image to worship him. God created man with the appropriate woman to be his wife. And we break from that order when we value other things and abuse sex. And I don't want, again, I don't want to make this just about a homosexual issue here, okay? When my dad left my mom for another woman, it was an abuse of sex. And I guarantee you, he was led astray by sinful desires because he stopped worshiping God rightly, okay? My dad was not in right fellowship with God and then all of a sudden led astray one day. He stopped worshiping God rightly. And then he was led astray by sinful desires, heterosexual sinful desires. It's the same pattern here. Paul highlights homosexuality here, but he's not limiting it to this. He's not making it a homosexual, heterosexual issue, I don't believe. He's saying the abuse of sex flows from idolatry, from not worshiping God rightly, just as all these other sins do. And some of these sins we wouldn't necessarily rank as big-time sins, right? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Paul considers it wicked. He says this stuff flows from not worshiping God rightly. And this truth rejection craves participation. So truth rejection leads to deception. We start thinking wrongly. God allows us to go down this, this mindset where, where I can sit with my dad, who was a pastor for nine years, and I can sit with him at McDonald's, and he can argue to me about why it's right, why his sin is right for him to leave our family and go with a different woman. That's a debased way of thinking. It's a wrong way of thinking. And he, he was led into that because he stopped worshiping rightly. And when we, when we, when we reject and, and, and reject truth, it leads to deception, it leads to idolatry, and it craves participation. Look what he says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. It's easier to justify wrong, unnatural behavior if you find others doing it too. It's easier to justify wrong, unnatural behavior if you can find others doing it too. They approve of others. Let me go back to, I forgot to answer Tyson's question, the due penalty. I think some people get silly here and they try to say that oh the the punishment for homosexuality is aids 
And that's what it means here. The due penalty for that sin is this disease. Most of that comes from people that are, that are insensitively handling this subject to begin with, that are making this a huge deal and probably are minimizing the heterosexual stuff that we talked about, pornography and lust and that kind of stuff. I think the due penalty that's being described here is the due penalty that happens from sin in general. God has built in moral consequences for sin. He's built it in. When we choose to do things wrong from the way he's created it, it always leads to heartache. There's moral consequences for all of our sins. And I believe that due penalty is just another example that when we start to veer off course from how God's created and designed things, we're going to reap the consequences of those decisions. We will reap the penalty that we deserve because we've rebelled against what God has desired for us. Now, on this line of thinking about approving what others do, Angela asked the question, how do we, how do we not give approval to friends and, and people that we're close to that maybe are doing sinful things? I think it's important for people that you're around to know that you're not okay with those things. I think it's also important to limit potentially the amount of time that you spend with them as a clear demonstration that you're not okay with those things. Depending on how close they are, it necessitates probably a conversation about why you're not okay with some of the things that they're involved in. Another aspect of this, I think, that I can be guilty of sometimes is giving approval to people doing things that I don't have the guts to do. What do I mean by that? If we're not careful, we can be guilty of approving of things through television, through movies, through media that we subject ourselves to. We put things before us, we watch things before us that we'd never have the guts to do on our own. But we'd love to do it, we just don't have the guts to do it. So we put before ourselves potentially sexually compromising situations on movies because it appeals to our flesh, it satisfies desires. Not stuff we'd actually go out and do personally, but there's nothing stopping us from giving approval to people that do it by putting it before us so that we can watch it and kind of, in our minds, act out what we wish we could do. I think we've got to be careful of both. Giving approval to, to sin that we're currently in or, or sin that our friends are in, we can't give approval to that. But we also need to be careful that we don't give approval to sins that we're not committing, but we almost wish we could commit. There's a great article on the Desiring blog this week about uh, questions to ask before you watch certain movies and television shows. It really gets to the heart of the issue of what's appealing about this show, what's appealing about this movie, why do I want to see it? And is it flowing from some type of sinful desire, or is it flowing from some type of godly, righteous desire? I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Okay, so out of this, why is God's wrath proper against the immoral man? Real quick, he's ignored the knowledge of God that's available to him. He's failed to give glory to his creator, and he knows what he's doing is wrong. Why is God's wrath proper here? He's ignored the knowledge of God that's available to him. He's failed to give glory to his creator. He knows what he's doing is wrong. I think there's two applications for us. First of all is that we need to be thankful for the gospel. Because remember, wrath is being poured out. Wrath is coming for people that don't worship rightly and don't live rightly. But as believers, as believers, we're spared from that. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. That we've been saved from wrath to come. That we're not destined for wrath. 
We need to be thankful for the gospel, and we need to be active with the gospel. We've been saved from this wrath. And if we're true believers, we've been saved from this pattern of sin in our life. We're worshiping rightly. God's Spirit's working through us. He's producing good works that, Lord willing, from this church will go to the ends of the earth and make his name great among the nations. But we work with people. We have, we have family members. We have people that we, we uh, engage in hobbies with that are still under this wrath, that are going to get God's proper response to their sin. They're not worshiping rightly. They've rejected the truth that's available to them. It's led to an immoral lifestyle. God's wrath's coming on them, and we have to be active with the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It results in people living by faith, living in submission to King Jesus, who comes from the line of David. We have a responsibility to communicate that message. Let's pray, and then I'll take any questions you have. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's contained here. God, I pray that you'd give us grace and mercy to communicate this truth to others. God, I know the gospel can be offensive because it exposes sin. It exposes exposes wrong ways of thinking. God, help us to be able to graciously communicate to others that their sinful desires are there. We're not minimizing them. We're not trying to make them uh, disappear. We're not trying to rationalize them away. We're not trying to scientifically show them that they're not true. That helps us to be able to communicate that, yes, sinful desires are there. It's a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And we are all born cursed and born with sinful desires that don't belong there. So, God, I pray that we'd be able to rightfully show others that those sinful desires have to be submitted to God's word. God, I pray that we would ultimately lead people to to not moralize their life by simply giving up sin and trying to accomplish good works in place of that. God, I pray that we'd be able to speak to the root of the issue, that they are worshiping God's that are not you. God, help us to see that they are failing to honor you and thank you with their lives. And that ultimately when that issue is resolved, the sin and good works will be taking place as well. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that righteousness has been revealed through Christ. That we can we can acquire that righteousness through faith. Praise you and thank you this morning. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.